All right, Katie, well, welcome back. This has been so much fun. So you know, we've been talking about you know, how to build a career and mm-hmm. you know, taking authorship and, and ownership of your career. So then we, a career though, we have to kind of start boiling this down a little bit. You know, you have a certain role or a job or outcomes that you're responsible for producing. Um, and then maybe the subset of that is well, what are the skills required to be successful and be able to do that? C- can you talk a little bit about skills architecture and, and why the firm believes that's rising in importance? Yeah, it's been exciting as I've been talking to other CHROs um, and CEOs, just how, you know, many companies are embracing kind of a shift to really focusing on skills, um, mm-hmm. skills as kind of the fundamental architecture of a talent strategy. And that is something we certainly are doing as well. And there are lots of benefits of this. Um, one is um, really to create uh, uh, the ability to kind of capture uh, uh kind of the value from from a much broader swath of talent, right? So, um, you know, we've all talked about the paper ceiling and the notion of how do you move away from screening for degrees and even years of experience to really focusing on, does this person have the skills I need? Because when you focus on, does this person have the skills I need? You open up a, a huge, you know, new universe of potential wonderful talent to bring into an organization or to develop. And so that's certainly something that we're really focused on in our recruiting. We talk about moving from pedigree to potential. Um, how do we not necessarily, you know, screen for um, somebody who knows how to do a McKinsey case interview, um, you know, as they would on, you know, day one in a team room. But how does how do we screen for people with the intrinsic problem solving skills and also some of the expertise and skills that we look for? Uh, in other areas to kind of bring to the party. Yeah. So let's just say that again for listeners, potential, not pedigree. I think there's such a powerful, just general idea to embrace because as you say, it completely opens up whole new swaths of talent to access versus very narrow, you know, although comfortable and maybe well-known, you know, uh, pools of talent to, to be. Uh, could you talk a little bit, maybe this actually kind of even bridges a little bit, Katie, into DEI kinds of things, but sure you know, when we expand the talent pool, how does that benefit an organization? Um, well, one of the things that we, I think we're leaders on in, in some of the analysis we did years ago was looking that at uh, when you have a team and you have a leadership team or whatever that has diversity in it, whether it's gender diversity, racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity, it performs better. It just performs better. Um, and I think those results have been replicated in lots of different contexts all over the world uh, and are quite undeniable um, that when you have a mix of different people together, they get to better solutions and a more healthy organization. Um, so we see, for example, leadership teams that have uh, a mix of, of men and women will have a healthier kind of organizational dynamic and they will then it results uh, and this is statistically true results in higher financial performance mm. so uh, diversity matters and it drives performance um, in order to capture uh, the benefits of, of diversity um, you need to have an inclusive kind of work culture so that everybody can contribute to their full self um, we have um, you know just as we were talking about pedigree to potential, um, we used to recruit at about 500 core schools. 
um, we're now at about 1,500, and we are planning to go to 5,000. And that just gives you a sense of just the mm. breadth of talent that's out there that we've not been accessing. And that also, you know, going to, to people with different degrees and with different kinds of majors and uh, different work experiences, et cetera. Um, so there really is a, a huge benefit, um, I think, from a, a, a real business benefit. Um, but it also then has the benefit of of creating a more inclusive workforce in general and, and one that... Um, uh, uh, is more diverse and, and therefore performs better from that perspective as well. We, we had uh, Julie Elberfeld, who's a former CIO at Capital One on mm -hmm. um, sometime last year, early last year. And one of the things that Julie said that just really stuck with me, and, and it's around this diversity idea, is having folks who do not come from the same background as yeah. maybe manage, senior management that has been around for a long time was around innovation. And yeah. so doing design for me and what I would buy, but I don't necessarily look like the target audience. Yeah. Right. And so getting points of view, like, well, I wouldn't use it that way. Like I would never use it that way because, you know, in my lifestyle or, you know, the way that, that I would use something like this is more like X than the way that you've designed it, like Y. And it's very eye-opening because if you don't have those perspectives coming into the dialogue, you don't have the opportunity until you've actually gone to market with it and watch it flop because you weren't listening to who your actual audience is. Yeah, I think consumer companies have, you know, figured out that they really need to have people in their organization who understand and, and you know, um, kind of represent, you know, some of the their customer populations. Um, but I think in general it's so easy to get into a group think kind of situation. Yeah. If everybody has the same background and everybody's been kind of raised to problem solve the same way and think the same way. And so there's real benefit from, from colliding different points of view. Mm -hmm. um, we used to have, we used to talk and we were very proud of this, that we had a McKinsey way of problem solving, right? It was top down 80, 20, every, you know, lots of people know what the hypothesis driven. We now teach five different types of problem solving. Um, and we bring people in with different problem-solving disciplines in their background, right? Designers, um, data scientists, uh, technologists. I mean, all of these folks have different ways of approaching a problem. And you bring that together uh, along with our more traditional business problem-solving approach, um, you really get some fantastic innovative results. Yeah, so uh, we, we had the former CEO of Proctor on last year. And one of the things that just really stuck in my mind that David said was that none of us is better than all of us. Right. And so I love what you're talking about, which is bringing like different problems, different ways of thinking about it, coming at the problem from a different angle, yeah. almost by definition lends itself to better solutions, or at least, you know, if all I, it's kind of, the, if all I have is a hammer, I only know the one McKinsey way right. of solving a problem. Right. But there's actually a better tool for solving that kind of a problem. But I don't know about that tool because I've never been taught it. Right. Well, you know, we're not actually helping the client as much as we could. So, you know, good on McKinsey for like, hey, continue to learn yourselves and not mm -hmm. just being, you know, so tradition bound. Yeah. You know, that we, we, we can't leave the past. Well, and that gets back to some of the things we were talking about before, which is in that context, you really do need to have a culture of everyone's a learner and everyone's a teacher. Um, yes. and, and because we're all listening and learning new things and we're all also contributing. So back on skills, because I feel, I feel like I accidentally didn't let, <laughs> let you fully develop that. You know, 
I guess, you know, skills acquisition, you have learning and development, which falls under your domain as well. And then people architecting and authoring their career of like, this is what I want to learn more about. How right. can you help me enhance my skills in this? Right. How much does a firm look to develop skills internally for folks versus organically acquire some of those skills? And do you mean organically acquired? Yeah, organically acquired. Doing, like, like I'm going to hire outside that expertise versus I'm going to teach yeah. you that skill. Well, it's, it's a great question. One of the things we're doing is bringing our assessment teams together for the people who are doing recruiting outside and the people who are developing inside because we, we uh-huh. realize that what we, what we really want to do is uh, always have a talent strategy that is a combination of hiring great skills that we can't develop well ourselves, right? Um, uh, also building skills either by creating apprenticeship programs internally or by partnering with others to do that, right? So that we're actually creating kind of new skills that maybe aren't out in the marketplace, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and also building them among colleagues um, who are already, you know, operating in our in our organization. So it really is a mix. Uh, and um, I think it's always a, a mistake if you end up focusing only on one of those, if you don't use the full kind of talent model. Um, you know, if you think, all you're going to do is recruit outside or all you're going to do is lots of learning programs inside. It really is about bringing together all of those different opportunities to build skills. And Mm -hmm. one of the things just to bring back your point about skill architecture, I think this is the thing that, you know, we and many other organizations are, you know, working through now, which is how do you characterize the skills that are needed? How do you make it dynamic so that as new skills are required or come up, you reward them and then codify them and how do you create skill credentialing? Um, and we're looking at both internal kind of skill credentialing, but also things that could be externally viable or even take advantage of external skill accreditation. And, and how do you do that so that the minute somebody comes in with a skill, they're tracked and you can kind of see how they can be brought in and, and given opportunities to take advantage of that skill. Um, but, you know, even if it's not in their immediate circle or their immediate team, you know, very important for any kind of agile uh, kind of team deployment. Mm. Um, and then how do you actually help people uh, give them the tools to uh, pursue learning programs and apprenticeship and development programs so that they can build skills and explore those over time? So lots of self-directed learning as well as, you know, self-authoring in terms mm. of helping choose, you know, what are the kinds of experiences you want to have to develop a new experience and new skill over time. Um, I love all this stuff. I want to, I want to go back to some, because I think this is pretty important. This, this may be more on our hybrid topic from the beginning of the conversation, but you know, what I read is an employer struggle to evaluate the impact. Like uh, if mm-hmm. people aren't in the office, like, right. if I can see you, and I know that you were here from nine to four. I have some notion that you were here doing work and yeah. not, you know, walking the dog and, you know, doing whatever else. Um, how does the firm help a client think about what's the proper way in a modern workforce to think about evaluating performance in, in a hybrid or remote world? Yeah, it's a great question. This actually was um, one of the things that came up at Davos a lot is about, you know, how do we manage knowledge worker productivity? We know how to do that if somebody is, um, you know, doing some, you know, 
tasks that we can count the number of times they did the yep. task, right? <laughs> but how do you do that in a knowledge worker environment? And one of the things that, that came up that really resonated with me was this notion that this is the year of the manager, which is mm -hmm. that it's really our frontline managers, um, whether that's McKinsey's team leaders or, you know, whether it's a frontline manager in another context, um, who has a harder job than they used to and um, needs to bring kind of some new skills and new thinking uh, to how they manage teams to make sure that the output and the quality of those teams is commensurate with the, you know, expected work that's going in. And measuring people's productivity by just watching them in the office is actually not all that great a measure. So, you know, we may have lost that for for workers, you know, who are, working remotely from home, but it wasn't a great way to measure productivity anyway. It was really just a measure of FaceTime uh, and I guess a focus. Um, and there've been you know, long debates about whether people at home are more productive, less productive, et cetera. And the answer is, you know, it depends. And so um, how do we teach our managers to be better at thinking about what the objectives are, what the outcomes are that we're looking for, what is a work plan look like? How are people clear about what they should be accomplishing? How do they stay in touch about what's going slower, what's going faster, how can we work together better? And how do we get people really motivated about um, really seeing um, you know, the outcome of their work and being proud of that and having you know, kind of an inherent motivation yes. to drive, you know, really great outcomes, which I think people have want to, you know, as we talked about the what motivates people, um, that motivates people. But sometimes we make it so difficult to see kind of what you're plugging away on, you know, how does this actually lead to something that's meaningful? And so it, it really is, I think, incumbent on an organization, but particularly on our frontline managers and supervisors to really help their teams bring this to life and to help manage their teams in a, in a way, in an effective way. I, I think there's certainly efforts also to define productivity and try to create metrics, et cetera. But um, when I think about where I think the the biggest kind of opportunity is, it's, it is in, it, it is in leadership and management learning and skill development. Well, I, I think you just said the magic word, which is leadership Mm -hmm. Right. Which, which for me is different than managing. Managing is sort of like, you know, here's tasks that must be done this way by this time at this cost or whatever, versus I think, again, that's sort of zooming out. And this is a human being who has aspirations, career goals, wants to be contributing at a high level, wants to develop mastery. It's something. Right. how are we helping them do those things? And, and it's kind of the zig zig where if you give other people what they want, you'll get what you want. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's both set of skills, but it really is, you know, I think we all have the experience of um, when when we get this right, you know, teams surprise us positively with, you know, what they are able to achieve. Yeah. So just trying to be mindful of the time, because there's a couple of things I do want to ask you. Um, first question is, what career advice would you give 28-year-old Katie? So I know it's only been a couple of years, but what, what, what career advice would you give 28-year-old Katie? just a couple of years ago. So <laughs> um, I, um, a couple of things. One is to be more comfortable with the notion that, you know, life is long, the journey's long, you don't have to solve for everything, you know, immediately. I was always so anxious about whether I was making the right decision, the right next decision. Was this the right choice for me? Was I doing well enough? Was I, 
working in the right way. And, um, you know, I, I think um, if you look over a longer time horizon, you give yourself more flexibility to achieve your goals and to be more flexible to opportunities that present themselves. Um, when I look back at my career, it is a really interesting combination of long-term passions, you know, that I've had from, you know, high school days uh, and opportunities that I would have never expected. I would never have expected to be in the role I'm in now. Uh, and I absolutely love it. And I, it connects to uh, long-term passions and long-term interests that I've had. So um, I wish that at age 28, and, and I would tell 28-year-olds to be more patient about letting things unfold, to taking a longer view of not trying to solve for everything kind of, you know, in the immediate term. Mm. Um, did, you talked about like you're kind of feeling pressure to get like every little decision right. As a woman, did you feel additional pressure in that regard, maybe compared to a male colleague? I think the... Um, uh, I'm not sure about more pressure, if you will. I think I just had a very high kind of achiever or kind of, you know, mindset, which which certainly a lot of men have also. I think um, what I wish that I'd known at 28 was that my authentic style would be successful and mm -hmm. that I didn't need to try to be something that I'm not, try to be someone I'm not. I didn't need to find somebody. You know, often we say, oh, if we can't see someone who's just like me, you know, then I, we can't see how we'd be successful. Um, and I ended up finding inspiration from lots of mentors, you know, most of them, frankly, men, some women, none of whom were exactly like me, none of whom who operated like me or had my life um, uh, and but pulled kind of different qualities from each of them, you know, kind of together. And so I think, um, you know, I wish that I'd been they realize that the, the what I've found now is the more I am kind of just who I am, not trying to be more serious or, uh, you know, or more something, um, uh, the more successful I've been, um, the more I've just kind of, you know, been who I am. And uh, I wish I'd known that earlier. So I could probably ask you a few more questions, but I actually kind of want to end on that because that really resonates with me that to to I can be successful being myself. And that I don't need to pretend and try and be someone else. We teach um, this. This is my inner McKenzie, but we, we teach the four C's to our clients, which is convictions. Like, who are you really? What do you truly believe? Who are you really? What What are you really about? Leads to clarity because now I'm not trying to guess the right answer. What 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 does Katie want me to say? Like, what What do my parents want me to be? What is the Wall Street Journal telling me I need to do next, but like, what's right for me mm -hmm. in my life. And so when, yes. and it, what, what clarity does is tells me what to say no to as much as it tells me what to say yes to, it provides me a framework of what to say no to. That's not that it's wrong or it's bad. It's just not the right fit for me for whatever reason. And when we've got that clarity that's grounded in convictions, it leads to the third C, which is confidence. Right. And when we're confident, we can excel. And when we're confident, we we sit up straighter, our eyes are more open, we modulate differently. And the beautiful thing, and it sounds like you've really experienced this, is when you've got that appropriate level of confidence and you're doing your job well because you're aligning yourself with things that you can do well, it's contagious. And, and that's where leaders really yeah. start to emerge, 
right? But it's all kind of grounded back in, and this is why it just what you said just so resonates with me, that you learn that you could be very successful being you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a great life lesson. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Bob, this has no, been a pleasure. <laughs> no, likewise. Um, obviously, the firm puts out a ton of thought leadership and quality things. Where, where can people go to, to learn more and, and maybe tap into some of the firm's leadership? Well, McKinsey.com has a wealth of um, our research and articles and information about every possible topic. Um, and what um, we provided you here is uh, uh, the specific uh, area where you can see all of our work on people and organizational performance topics. So awesome. topics about hybrid and virtual work and the great resignation, the great renegotiation, all of those things you can read about there. Yeah, well, and again, the firm just puts out you know, world-class content and uh, it's it's there for the taking. So I would just really encourage people to do that. But Katie, I am just so appreciative of our time together. Thank you. It's been great to get to know you. And uh, you know, you're, yeah, I can see why you've done very well. You're equal parts, very nice, genuine, authentic, wicked smart. You put that together. That sounds pretty <laughs> successful. So thank you. Very kind of you to say. Thank you, Bob. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening and uh, stay tuned for more great episodes coming up. And uh, again, we would encourage you to check out all the great content at McKinsey as well as career.club. Thank you everyone. Bye-bye. I know you.